Growing up in Michigan, snowmobiling was an occasional pastime in the winter months. Anybody here ever been on a snowmobile? Okay, more than I thought. We used to go snowmobiling, and I remember one time when I was in high school, I was snowmobiling with my friend, and we were deep in the woods, deep in the forest of northern Michigan, deep on a trail. And we had been snowmobiling for a long time, so we decided to take a break. We parked the snowmobiles, and we laid down on our backs on the fresh winter snow. And we were looking up above us at the winter sky with all those trees around us. And my friend, lying on his back, said, do you notice how the trees, even in the winter, are lifting their hands and fingers in praise? They praise God in season and out of season. I want to live like that, he said. Don't you want friends like that for your teenage kids? (laughs) Support young life. Support young life. He says this to me, and I remember vowing in that moment, I want to live that way too. I want to worship God in season and out of season. In fact, we were created just like all of nature was created to worship God. It's written even in our breath. Did you know that? The Old Testament name for God is Yahweh. And some have figured out that even our breath sounds like that. We breathe in, and we breathe out way. Let's all just try that a minute. Everybody take a deep breath in and breathe out. Yahweh, you have just worshipped in the design that you were created in. We're designed to worship. Now, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands now, but how many of us are like those trees and we praise God even when there's no fruit on the vine? How many of us Praise God with every breath, with every fiber of our being, with every cell in our body. None of us does that. None of us worships truly and consistently. Why? Well, in a very short word, you know the answer. Why? Sin. Sin has warped us to no longer offer true worship with every breath. But specifically, according to this passage and the whole of the Bible as it relates to worship, what's wrong with us is something called idolatry. Idolatry. Now, I know that's a heavy topic to think about here on a Sunday morning. I almost entitled today's sermon, Idolatry and Other Light Topics. (laughs) It's a little bit like walking into the doctor's office and being told a diagnosis of something that's wrong with you. It's not a word you normally hear, And the doctor says, I'm sorry to break the news, but you have idolatry. When we hear that type of statement, we might have some questions. What is it? How did we get it? What does it do to us? But what we really want to know is what's the remedy? What's the remedy? And if you're taking notes for the sermon this morning, those four questions are going to guide us through this chapter. Idolatry, what is it? How did we get it? What does it do to us? And ultimately, what's the remedy? All of those questions are answered right here in Joshua chapter 2. So let's begin with the first one as we receive this diagnosis of having idolatry. What is it? What is this disease? Verse 11, let's read about it together. This is Joshua chapter 2, if you still have your... Bible open. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. I want to point something out, a couple things in the text here. Perhaps you know this, but every time you see the word Lord with all capital letters in the Old Testament, what's happening in the Hebrew there, the word in Hebrew is Yahweh, the name of God according to the Bible. You notice what it says here about the people who had idolatry. They abandoned Yahweh, it says, and they went after other gods, the gods of the nations that surrounded them, and they bowed down to them. We should observe here that the people of God, when they exhibited idolatry, they didn't stop worshiping. Remember, we're created to worship. It's in our very breath, but they abandoned Yahweh, the one we are designed to worship, and they turned away from Yahweh, and they kept worshiping, but they worshiped these other gods. Who were those other gods in the Old Testament times? Most infamously, it was Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, Baal and Ashtoreth were the god and goddess of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites believed that when Baal and Ashtoreth mated or had relations in the underworld, well, that would encourage springtime crops and harvests to grow more plentiful. So what the priests and priestesses of Baal worship would do is they would go to their altars, their public high places, and the priests and priestesses would do things to encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to mate in the underworld. I'm not going to describe that for you right now, but I want you to use your imagination. Those of you who are giggling right now, you get it. Now, this must have been very appealing to the Israelites, these Torah-observant, law-observant Jews. When they wandered past the towns of the Canaanites, they would see this happening. And their hearts were turned. They were particularly enchanted by it, apparently. And they abandoned Yahweh and began worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. Now, by the time Jesus came around, people were worshiping all kinds of gods, notably the Roman gods. I just want to tell you a little bit about these Roman gods, and I want you to pay attention to what these people were worshiping. I have a slide here to show some of them. You had Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. And if you worshiped Aphrodite in just such a way and gave her the sacrifices she demanded, you too might receive beauty or beautiful people around you. Tell me if you notice any similarities in these ancient gods with gods that we are tempted to worship in our own time. There's Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. There was Ares, the god of war. And if you worshiped Ares in just such a way, you might be rewarded with victory. There was Artemis. She was the goddess of the hunt, but she was also known as being the goddess of fertility and wealth. And if you sacrificed some of the animals that you hunted to her, you might receive wealth from her. There was Hephaestus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He was the god of craftsmanship. And if you did your work in just such a way, you would be rewarded richly. Do any of these sound familiar at all? The people in the ancient times abandoned Yahweh, the one we are created to worship, and they began bowing down to these 
false, these other gods, these idols. If you're interested in this topic, there's a very good, powerful, short book by Tim Keller named Counterfeit Gods. I recommend this to you. It unpacks all of the gods that culture offers us in the ways that we can make these good things into ultimate things and and what that does to us. So that's what idolatry is. It's the turning away from worshiping who we were created to worship and bowing down to these other offerings from our culture. The next question that we might ask when we hear this diagnosis that we have, something called idolatry, is we might wonder, how did we get it? How did idolatry come into our generation? And in in Judges 2, it shows us in verses 6 through 9, it describes this generational effect. Joshua lived to 110 years old. He was faithful, and all the elders of his generation were faithful, but they went to their fathers, and another generation came, and they were faithful. They kept worshiping Yahweh and his saving work. And another generation came, and we pick up the story in verse 10, and here's what it says. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, who did not know Yahweh, or the work that he had done for Israel. See what's happening here? One generation tells the next generation of the saving work of Yahweh. That's what keeps our hearts worshiping the one true God, as if one generation tells the next generation, but suddenly there's a break in the chain here. It says, another generation arose and did not know the work of Yahweh and what he had done. I find this phrasing very interesting. This is sometimes how we think of generations. It says, another generation arose, like it arose out of nowhere. But if you think about it, generations don't arise, we raise them don't we? A little baby is born, and that baby doesn't know anything until we tell him or her. It's our responsibility to share with the next generation the saving work of Yahweh. That's why we support Young Life. That's why our children right now in the children's wing are learning about judges. That's why our youth downstairs are learning about judges. We are passing on to the next generation the saving work, because we're trying to save the next generation from idolatry. The world will offer many, many things for which these kids will, can bow down. So it's our job to share with them the saving work of God. It's unpopular in our culture to teach other people's kids the right way, isn't it? Sometimes we think, oh, I have my own kids. I can tell my own kids about God, but I don't, it's not my responsibility for the whole generation. Or maybe some of you have kids who are rising up and they don't know God, even though you've taught them. Well, that's where you realize it takes more than just you. It takes a whole village. It takes a whole church. Last Sunday, I baptized that little baby. I thought I saw the hosts come in. Where, where are they? Yes, I baptized Pippa. And you remember, I walked her down the aisle and I showed her all of you and said, these are your spiritual aunts and uncles. And I charged us to raise Pippa in the faith. It's unpopular to do that these days. I want to illustrate that point with a little story. 
my daughter was having a play date last year in our house, and her friend was over. And eventually the dad came to pick up the daughter, and he pulled into our driveway with this big, beautiful BMW convertible. Now, this illustration is not about my idolatry for cars. It's about how uncomfortable it is when we tell other people's kids the right way. I'll continue the story. So he pulled into the driveway, and I was talking with the dad about the car. And while we were talking, the daughter slipped into the back seat, and she was sitting there listening to us and waiting to go home. And I noticed something on the the headrests of the front seats of the car. They look like speakers to me for sound. So I said, are these speakers? And he said, oh, no. No, that's what the, the, the dealer calls heat scarves. It pours heat over your neck on those cool days. How sweet is that? (laughs) Oh, this is not about my idolatry of cars. That's right. (laughs) While he's describing the heat scarf on the front seat of the car, the little girl in the back seat piped in, and she said, yeah, it's not fair. There's no heat scarves in the back seat, and Daddy doesn't let me sit in the front seat. And while she was saying this, I felt this, these words coming, and I couldn't filter myself. So I looked at her and I said, so let me get this straight. You're sitting in an $85,000 luxury car that you didn't pay for, and you're whining about it? You don't want your kids hanging around me, do you? And while I was saying this to the girl, I saw the dad turning towards me. And I was really nervous. And I turned towards him to look at him. And he said, thank you. (laughs) No one's ever talked to her that way. I was so glad. Now, I'm not saying that we should all go shame our friend's children like I did. I might have tweaked the messaging a bit there. But the point is, it takes all of us to teach the next generation about the saving work of God. If we don't, then we shouldn't be surprised if another generation arises, just as it did in the time of the judges, who's entitled or bratty or addicted to technology or who does not know the saving work of God. It's on us, all of us, to teach the next generation. So that's what idolatry is, and that's how we got it. We got it generationally. The next question is, what does it do to us? What does idolatry do to us when it inflicts a whole generation? Let's look at verse 14 to find out. It says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. You see, what's happening here is that God is allowing his people to taste, to experience the full extent of the thing they were so interested in. It's like God was saying, you're so interested in the gods of the Canaanites. Do you want to taste the full extent of what Canaanite living is all about? Because the Canaanites were not nice people. And so they worshipped the Canaanite gods long enough. Eventually, the Canaanites plundered them. God gave them the desire of their hearts. The ultimate end of idolatry is destruction. It does not satisfy in the way that it presents itself as doing when you first see it. 
He gave them over. In Romans chapter 1, in the New Testament, there's a whole paragraph in there. It's similar language where it says, God gave them over to the lusts and passions of their hearts. Sometimes in His grace, God allows us to taste the full extent of what the idol we're worshiping offers us. On Easter, my children got these giant chocolate bunnies from Jody. Jody, I see you there. Thank you for those delicious chocolate bunnies. But they were, they were seriously this big. The chocolate bunnies were this big. And we brought them home, and the children were obviously very interested in eating all this chocolate. And there was so much chocolate in the house. And they kept asking, can we have chocolate? Can we have chocolate now? After every meal, so Nancy and I were rationing it out. We broke it into pieces about the size of the palm of their hand, which is still a lot of chocolate if you think about it. Can we have chocolate? Can we have more? There's so much of it. The children were wondering, why, why can't, can't we just have all of it? And finally, Eva asked that. Why are you giving us such small pieces, she said. <laughs> and so I had the children imagine. There, there they sat on the kitchen counter, and I said, just imagine for a moment if, if I forced you to eat that entire thing. You know what they both did? They both went, oh. You see, what looks so enticing, what looks so promising, what looks so tasty in the form of an idol, sometimes God in his grace and in his sovereign plan, he allows us to have the full extent of it. I met with a guy some years ago. None of you know him. He gave me permission to share this. He sold one of his businesses for more money than he would ever need in a lifetime, what you call walkaway money. And I met with him, we had dinner together, and he told me about how he was feeling in that moment. And he was a conflicted man. He used this phrase with me, and in fact, I heard him, I paid attention, he used it four times. He said, I'm lost. I'm lost. And he said, what happens when the thing you've been striving for actually happens? Now what? He said. Now, this man is doing fine now because he knows he was raised in a family that taught him how to worship Yahweh, to remember the saving work of God, and now he's on a path towards fulfillment and worship and a second half of his life, but some people aren't so fortunate. Sometimes God gives us the full extent, the full taste of the thing we were striving for. Now, is there anything wrong with selling your business? No. Is there anything wrong with beauty or with work or with victory? No, but they were never created to be the ultimate things. Chocolate bunny is delicious, but you don't want the whole thing all at once. We're designed to worship Yahweh and everything else, every other idol, every other pursuit, if it becomes the ultimate thing, it disappoints us. And it's actually destructive. That's what idolatry does to us, which leads to our last question. What's the remedy? What's the remedy for idolatry? Verse 16 tells us what the remedy was for a season for God's people. It says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So for several generations, and we're going to be studying these judges over the next few weeks, for several generations, God sent judges into the lives of the people, and all the judges did was warn the people, just what I've just done in this sermon this morning, about the destructive end 
of idolatry, and he reminded them to come back to true worship. True worship is the remedy for idolatry, and after some time, God sent a better judge. God sent Jesus, who not only reminded us of the saving work of God, but who did a better saving work. Jesus came and he did the work necessary for our salvation. And the only remedy for idolatry is to simply remember that, to teach our children about it, yes, but to remember it ourselves. You've heard me say a number of times I love the architecture of this room and one of the reasons why is because of this giant cross we have on the wall. We gather in this place intergenerationally every Sunday and we gaze upon that symbol, we gaze upon the cross to remember the saving work. When we do that, all the idols of our lives are exposed for the pathetic things that they are. When we remember that Jesus died and rose again, I'm going to sit right here in the front pew with you so we can all just look at this together. This is why we come. If this is all we did every Sunday, if we just sat here and remembered the saving work of God, what he's done for us. In these weeks after Easter with the white cloth hanging over, we remember that he not only died in our place, he died because of all of our idolatry, all of our wandering away from him, all of our worshiping false gods. He died to pay the penalty for all that, but he also rose again from the dead to conquer even death. That's his full saving work, and we gather in this place and we simply remember that. When we do, we realize the other things we've been pursuing are pathetic and unsatisfying and even destructive. So Jesus, be lifted up Jesus, in your saving work, be the object of our worship, our true worship. Even as we sit here before we go to the communion table, we're just going to take a moment of silence where we can confess to God some of those things we've been pursuing, the idols. May the Holy Spirit reveal to us what they are. We just bring those to the foot of the cross and cast them down so that the saving work of God might become the object of our true worship. Lord, hear our prayers. And all God's people said, amen.